and welcome back to another episode of the Asking for a Friend podcast. It's an elder-led ministry of Believer's Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. My name is Duffy Henderson, and I'm your host. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and the benefit of God's people. Here, we hope to provide helpful, thoughtful, and most importantly, biblical material as we address everyday life issues and questions. So if you find this podcast helpful, please take a few moments to share it with someone that you think would also benefit from it. Thanks for listening in today, and may the Lord bless this episode greatly to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth and your benefit. And we are back once again with the third episode in our podcast series on hermeneutics, Hermeneutics 101, some basic principles. Tyler is joining me once again. Tyler, how are you, brother? Doing great. Glad to be back with you. I'm excited to dive into this. This might be one of my favorite topics to to dive into. I know that when I encountered this particular set of information for the first time, it, it really was impactful to me as a Christian as someone who teaches the Bible and studies the Bible, who's a seminary student myself, uh, this was an extremely helpful uh, portion of material that I've encountered personally. So we hope that it will be helpful for you today. So we are back again, like I said, with another episode in our hermeneutics uh, series. We've taken some basic, basic principles. Some uh, We've talked about knowledge and can we know God and uh, talking about the in our previous episodes about uh, one of the crucial factors in proper biblical interpretation is um, having the Spirit indwelling us and having these new eyes as we uh, read Scripture in a spiritual manner and have um, God revealed to us that way through His Word. And so, of course, uh, Tyler, you can give us a little bit of a, more of a summary from where we've been, but today we're going to look at a redemptive historical process, uh, maybe just an introduction to that today on the episode. So Tyler, take it away, brother. Absolutely. When we talk about a redemptive approach to hermeneutics, we're really talking about a Christ-centered or a gospel-centered approach to scripture. So we've talked about how a historical approach can only get you so far. A theological approach is helpful in many areas, but if it falls short of a saving knowledge of God through Christ, then what would it benefit a man to gain all these doctrines and lose his soul? Mm. So the core of what we need to look at is really the saving revelation. And that's why this fifth lens or this fifth hermeneutic that we've talked about is so important. So now we need to press further into the redemptive hermeneutic. And I think of that as sort of the bullseye of the five rings of the hermeneutics that we've talked about so far. Now we do talk about ultimately a redemptive historical approach as you hinted at. So what we are saying is that Christ is both fully human. He's a real historical human being, just like we are. And yet this is also a saving spiritual revelation that will save our soul for eternity. And so it is eminently historical and redemptive. And this is where we get the term of what we call redemptive historical hermeneutics. Now, when we talk about this, we're taking again our starting point from Jesus' own approach to how he interpreted the Bible. So a truly Christian approach to scripture should begin where Jesus begins. And in Luke 24:44, I'll remind us, Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. This is where I think some of our listeners may be a little bit surprised because 
This is actually a radical insight from the Bible that Jesus was reading in the first century. Mm. And there are some things we need to know about the revelation of the Hebrew Old Testament or even the Greek New Testament that, that follows it that may surprise us if we're reading our English Bibles. And so one thing that I think all of our listeners should know, or if they're watching this, they're going to be able to see sort of the three sections of scripture that Jesus is talking about, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which refers to all the poetic writings that go with the Psalms as well, Mm -hmm. is actually a technical term for the three main sections of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. Yes. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky, because what if we had our Bible in English, which is commonly divided in four sections, people divided into law, history, poetry, and wisdom, or prophecy and wisdom, depending on how they divide it. We might be used to a four-section approach to Scripture, but people might be surprised that that actually came later. Mm. That came from Western readers, from a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Mm. And what they did is they sort of had this template of four sections of Scripture, but it wasn't the original template that Jesus used. Now, I want to sort of be careful here because everyone should know it had all the same books of the Bible that we have, but it had three major sections. So we still had access to all the same information. But one of the things that we need to look at very carefully is that it's not just what God reveals that's important, but the way he reveals it Mm. is also very important. So I'll give you an example. Genesis obviously introduces the entire Bible. Would anyone feel comfortable if a publisher decided, hey, we're going to come out with a new Bible, and uh, in our translation, we're going to have all the same books, but we're going to rip Genesis out of the front, and we're going to put it in the middle of the New Testament, or the middle of the Old Testament even. Right after Psalms. Yeah, right after Psalms. (laughs) So let's do some poetry, then let's flash back to historical creation. It'd be very disorienting, right? Or what if, as we all know, Revelation reveals some deep and astonishing things, not just about the present, but also the future Mm -hmm. and the final revelation of the return of Christ and the eternal state that follows. So Revelation is really the fitting conclusion to the entire Bible. Well, would people be surprised if a publisher said, hey, let's, let's rip Revelation off of the end of the New Testament and let's put it at the start? What if your New Testament started with Revelation? You'd be a little bit disoriented, right? Yep. So what we're saying is, although we don't always read the Bible in a linear order, however, whatever printed Bible that we're looking at, there is some logic to the way that the canon was actually recorded by God. Moses came first with the law, then the prophets, then many of the poetic books, then the New Testament comes, gospels first, then the epistles, then revelation. There's actually a logic to the movement of scripture. And what we're going to see is that historical movement from Genesis to Revelation ultimately is revealing things about God's message of redemption that will help us to understand how these books are redemptive. Because at the end of the day, if we understand how all of the parts fit together, then we can understand our Bible as a whole. Yes. And so what I would recommend is really for everyone to think about three major sections of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. We actually have a very similar structure in the New Testament, but we can talk about that a little bit later. What Jesus referred to was the law, that's obviously Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets, and here you would think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 latter prophets. But this is where we have to be careful again, because our English Bible doesn't look at Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings as the prophets. Mm. 
But in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, those books were known as the former prophets. Fascinating. That's actually recorded in scripture as well. Zechariah talks about the former prophets before Israel was in exile, which would be Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, the history of life in the land. Hmm. And then Zechariah distinguishes them from the latter prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the others you would think of like Zechariah and Malachi and so forth. So then finally, we have this third section, which is known as the writings. And so the way that they would refer to the writings is by the first book of that section, which is why Jesus talks about the law, the prophet, and the Psalms, which is the first book of all the remaining Old Testament scriptures known as the writings. So this is where we have all of our poetic books, our wisdom books, like Psalms and Proverbs and so on, even the book of Ruth. Actually, we might think of that in a history section in a modern Bible. Hmm. But in the original Hebrew Bible, it was part of the writings because Ruth is revealing a special kind of wisdom. And there's actually two sections to the writings. One of them is all about life in the land, primarily. And one of them is about life in exile. Mm. And that's why you have a distinction here between Ruth, who wants to be part of the land during the time of the judges. She wants to be an Israelite in the land. And she's being folded into life in the land. Mm. Compare that to, say, Daniel or Esther who are learning how to endure through trials in exile when they're outside of the land. So all of these books have some wisdom component to them, but this would have been a special section of the Bible that was a little bit distinct from what we call the prophets. Now, that's sort of the basic structure. So if people think of three major sections, that will get us started. But in a moment, we can talk about how every one of these sections has a special function within God's special revelation of the Old Testament and also the New as to how it reveals a redemptive message because the law will actually prepare us for the prophets mm. and the prophets reveal certain things that will complement with the writings. And so they all have sort of a harmony with each other as they reveal God's redemptive message. Wow, that's really helpful. Uh, those of you who are not able to see, if you're just listening on the podcast forum, he's got a really helpful chart here laying out the different kind of categories that he's talking about here that's very helpful. Um, yeah, so keep keep taking us through this. This is really good. So, uh, again, we're talking about um, redemptive historical understanding of Scripture. So seeing how the entire, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, how these different portions of Scripture play into each other, how they complement one another. Uh, yeah, keep, keep going, brother. Certainly. So I, I realize that that's a lot of information and could even be surprising for some of us to know that the order of Jesus' Bible was actually giving some special highlighting to what each part of the Bible was doing, how it was revealing these redemptive messages. So I want to kind of take a step back, and I want to start now with a little bit simpler example between Genesis and Revelation again as the two bookends of all of the Bible. And this is where we could talk about a movement of God's revelation, which is a growing revelation from Genesis, moving through all of history in the Old Testament until the coming of Christ, the apostles, and then obviously the culmination and the, the consummation comes in the book of Revelation, which is the other bookend that closes the canon of scripture. And so this is where really what we're starting to talk about is what we call biblical theology. Now, biblical theology is not a redundant title. What we're talking about here is biblical theology as kind of a movement from the revelation of God in Genesis in seed form until it's growing and growing and growing throughout the Old Testament. It's coming to bloom when Christ comes and he completes his saving work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. But then it continues to grow 
until we get all the way to the book of Revelation. And so this is where Genesis and Revelation are sort of special in the sense that these are the bookends for the entire Bible. Again, Genesis giving us the start of God's saving revelation in seed form. And that's why Genesis begins with what we call the proto-gospel in Genesis 3. This is that the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. He would destroy the works of the devil, save God's people from their sins. And immediately after that, God sacrifices an animal and covers the shame and nakedness of Adam and Eve with the coats of skins Mm. from the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So as soon as there's a fall... In Genesis, literally in seed form, there's the seed promise of the coming seed of the woman who would be the redeemer. And so we start off with this redemptive revelation and this theme of sacrifice Mm. starting in Genesis 3. Now that vision of sacrifice is only going to grow as we go through all the Old Testament. You get into the law and what are you going to see? Animal sacrifice in the temple. There's a substitute for sin. Someone's going to take your place. When you get to the prophets, what do you see now? Now it's a special section of scripture. It's no longer giving you the procedures. Here's how you lay your hands on the goat for the day of atonement. Here's how you sacrifice the Passover lamb. It's not giving you the procedures. It's proclaiming to you salvation. It's calling people to repentance and restoration for sins. They're now gospeling God's word to his people, calling them out of sin and giving them sort of direct calls to repentance and direct offers of forgiveness, very similar to how the apostles will in the New Testament. And communicate way back, I'm thinking Isaiah right now, but the, the the prophets all communicate that it is God alone who makes atonement for sin. Yes. So there's a call to repentance. There's the reality of sin. There's the need for confession of sin and repentance and the reality that there's only one who can actually make atonement to correct the problem of sin, all in the Old Testament, which is beautiful. So just you're, you're calling to mind all sorts of things for me right now. It's very good. It's it's utterly beautiful. And part of what we're seeing here is really a growing understanding of that movement of God's saving plan of mm. redemption. Another way to say this is that the Bible didn't end in Deuteronomy. It didn't end with the law of Moses. After that, you get more revelation. And now the prophets give you something special. So if you saw there was going to be a substitute in the law of Moses, there was going to be a sacrifice. Now you get to Isaiah 53 And you start to realize God's sacrifice is going to be a person. It's going to be his servant, the man of sorrows, who's going to be pierced for our transgressions. He's going to bear our sins. So you begin to see a growing prophetic revelation that builds on the earlier revelation from the law. And all of that reveals the gospel through all these books of the Old Testament. We find parallels in the New Testament, but that prepares us for the third section that we could talk about, which is the writings. Mm. Now, the writings are special because they're always giving us wisdom and principles for how we live in light of this saving message. So if you don't have wisdom, how do you obtain it? If someone hasn't seen this saving revelation, as we saw in Psalm 19, it can open your eyes and restore your soul and bring you to that salvation. And then at the same time, for someone who is saved, it can teach them how to live life in Christ. How do you navigate through your trials when you're in a situation that feels like exile or when you're flourishing like Israel was in the land? How do you live life in Christ spiritually when you're in a good season of flourishing? These kinds of things. And this is one reason why we 
gravitate toward the writing so frequently. I think for so many people, Psalms and Proverbs and books like that are just favorite books of the Bible because they're timeless. They're always practical. And what they're yep. really giving yep. us are principles for how to live life in that's Christ. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I think that's, that's helpful as you're talking through that is most often, and I think this might be a hindrance to our study and our growth of our knowledge of Scripture, is that oftentimes we approach Scripture, speaking in this concept of hermeneutics and interpretation, we approach Scripture wanting to bypass the hard work sometimes to get, we want, we want uh, an application and a practical something or other right now. We don't want to do the hard work of interpretation and getting to what God wants us to hear versus what we think we want or what we ought to hear from the Word. And so we're, we're always kind of running to that practical, which is why we love Psalms and Proverbs and uh, Paul, Paul's letters to the churches, right? They're extremely practical uh, sorts of things, and uh, that, that's really helpful information. Uh, I wish, I w- again, reader or li- readers, <laughs> I'm reading this, listeners, it's very helpful to see kind of this chart that he's got here with the compartmentalization of the books, as we kind of can see in the New Testament and the Old Testament the writings, the prophets, as it were, in the New Testament, and the law, as it were, in the New Testament versus the Old. It's really helpful. Certainly, and people, people can pick up the video if they want a little bit more yep. detail. Yep. If they don't have the video, the good news is it's not too fancy. We've been talking about three boxes, so you can yep. think of the law, the prophets, and the writings. Yep. But, of course, we can always get a little bit more detail. Now, let's press in for a moment on a redemptive understanding of the Psalms or of the wisdom literature in what we call the writings. That's that third section of Scripture. And this is where, Duffy, I know you're doing quite a bit of study in the book of Psalms recently. This is where I'd like to share another three-box or three-tiered approach to reading books like Psalms or any book of the writings and to understand how they apply to this redemptive revelation that we've been talking about. So obviously everyone gravitates toward books like Psalms because they're very practical, but that's only one level of understanding or interpretation. In fact, in many cases, it's really what we would call the significance of the text. Mm -hmm. And it may not even be pressing into the core meaning of the message that's in that text. Mm -hmm. Because the message that's in that text is fundamentally saving. It's fundamentally Christ-centered, as Jesus himself said in Luke 24. And so what this means is we really need to start with a messianic interpretation of the Psalms. And so I believe this is originally from Richard Belcher's book on the Psalms, which is very helpful. He talks about the messianic voice within the Psalms or the voice of Christ that's revealed there. And so really, I think fundamentally, if we think of a pyramid with three levels, sort of that that base of the pyramid where people are getting a lot of their applications is sort of the individual subjective experience that every believer has. How does the psalm give me wisdom to navigate my cranky coworkers, right? How does the psalm help me when I'm talking with my yeah. children yeah. or with my friends or my wife or whatever it may be? Or even or even in in this situation of I'm going through a difficult time, how do I express my emotions to back to God? And that's a legitimate thing. Uh is that all that's there? No. But that, I think that's legitimate, at least to a certain degree, right? All of those things are legitimate. To a certain degree, a certain absolutely. Degree. And this, yeah. is, this is where it's fascinating because really we're talking about the depth of hermeneutics. Yes. This is the art and science of how we interpret books like this. There is a level of legitimately to that. But if we dwell on that for a moment, we would have to say, okay, is the book of Psalms, again, is it truly about my coworkers, 
Or is it truly about my kids or my friends or my wife or whatever yes. it may be? Well, if it was, when other people read uh -huh. Psalm 22, they'd see my trials in yep. Psalm 22. They'd see your trials. Yep. But at the end of the day, Psalm 22 is about the sufferings and trials of the Messiah. Yep. So there is a, another, another layer, as you talked about, how do we express sort of our, our lament or mm -hmm. our struggle? How do we cry out to God? How do we articulate our faith and cry out to Him? Interestingly, in the ancient world, they were not as individualistic as we are. That's a legitimate thing that we do. But yeah. actually, in the ancient world, that would be the next layer of the pyramid in the middle. They would actually tend to do that corporately, where mm -hmm. they would pray together. They would call out to God as a church. They would lament to God as a congregation. The mm -hmm. whole assembly, ecclesia, we might say, would cry out to God in corporate worship and prayer. And we still do that in certain days, certain ways to this day. But the peak of the pyramid, and this is where I, I want to sort of give us a, a fresh approach, again, to how Jesus was reading the Old Testament. The peak of the pyramid would to be the core or the central redemptive message that's in every psalm or every book of the writings, which would be a messianic or a Christ-centered interpretation. So all that to say, if we have three levels of the pyramid, which is individual, church, and then Christ, hmm. we actually have our pyramid fundamentally upside down. It's fundamentally backwards. Because at the end of the day, what most people are doing with the Psalms or with the writings is they have a self-centered approach yep. to the writings. When in the ancient world, they would have had a Messiah-centered approach, which means we need to have a Christ-centered approach. Mm. Christ is supposed to be the foundation. And if Christ is the foundation, then everyone that's in him, the middle layer of the pyramid, can worship God together. We have a unity as his body. We call out, ask, ask for blessings, receive his wisdom, be encouraged by him together in prayer. And then finally, that little sort of tip of the spiritual food pyramid should be, how do I apply this finally to myself That's right. as an individual? That is one legitimate part of it, but that should fit within the body of Christ right. as a community, and it should be founded in Christ as the foundation. Yeah, that's really good. I want to just tease one little, uh, one little part of this out because I have been doing some reading and some study in this, and I do know there's some challenges uh, because I think that we have in some way been catechized, you know, to use, a, to use that terminology, we've been kind of catechized how to read the Old Testament from listening to sermons and listening to folks here and there, however we've been taught, mm -hmm. um, without this distinctly messianic interpretation or Christ-centered, whatever term we want to use there. Um, but Belcher was really helpful in my reading, personally, because he, has, um, he, he, he acknowledges that there are some certainly direct, uh, he calls them directly messianic and indirectly mm. messianic. And he yes. that was an incredible insight for me because there is a real issue with when we come to the text of like just the Psalms, we've been talking about that. There are some Psalms like Psalm 22 is a great example. Psalm 110, the New Testament actually tells us, it informs us that this was proclaiming Christ. But not every Psalm on its face has that same weight. Mm -hmm. And so he brings out these indirect lines of interpretation messianic in a messianic way yes. that was extremely, I mean, I was reading through it and it was actually really simple. It wasn't uh, convoluted as you might think. It was very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, kind of using this as uh, that 
the entire Psalter is pointing forward mm-hmm. in some sense to him. It was you know, just a just a thought there as we were talking about the Psalms and Christ-centered interpretation. It's very, very helpful. And I think this actually starts to answer one of the questions that we had toward the beginning of our study is how do we have a legitimate Christ-centered interpretation, both for the part and for the whole? And I think one of the things that we need to acknowledge is that there are some passages that are much more direct and they speak of Christ much more clearly. And then there are other passages that are really taking the whole of the passage, as you said, and they are pointing forward to Christ. So that's a very, very helpful way to approach these things. Now, if we build on that understanding of the canon, one of the things that we want to do, we've talked about the law, the prophets, and the writings. We've talked about Genesis and Revelation as bookends to the entire Old Testament. We can see parallels to this later in the New Testament as well. But right now what we want to do is talk about how every part of the Old Testament relates together. Again, starting with the categories that are in Jesus' Bible from the first century. So if we start with that, what we're going to see is that these three sections were designed to work together in a redemptive way. And so this is where the law leads to the prophets and the prophets will obviously prepare us for the writings, but this is where we have a special interpretation that we need to look at, and that is what is the relationship between the law and between the prophets. Now, I think we have to understand what a prophet is in the Old Testament, and that's something that's sort of been lost in our English Bibles. In the Old Testament, there's a special word for a certain kind of prophecy, and it's called the reeve. Our readers can think of R-I-V, the reeve. The word reeve in Hebrew literally means lawsuit. And the reason why God talks about lawsuit prophecies in the Old Testament is because the prophets are God's covenant lawyers. Now, I want to slow down for a moment for our listeners, and I want to explain very carefully, this is not a metaphor. This is not some kind of an illustration or an analogy. We are not saying, oh, God's prophets are sort of like lawyers in some ways. That's a kind of a helpful illustration. No, what I mean is that God's prophets are literally his covenant lawyers because the first section of the Old Testament is called his law. And when Israel violates his law, he sends in the prophets who literally function as his lawyers. They explain that Israel has violated the law. They explain what will be the penalties for violating the law. And then what do they do in God's grace? This is where they're actually gospeling the prophecies of the Old Testament. They're actually revealing the great escape clause of repentance and forgiveness and restoration and cleansing of sins that actually comes when people like us who have violated God's legal code, the lawyers come and they explain what we would call covenant curses, which are the penalties, but they also explain covenant blessings, which are the rewards that ultimately, if we violated God's law, we don't deserve. But nevertheless, the lawyers come in and they explain. This is just like Isaiah at the beginning of his prophecies. Even though your sins be red like scarlet, I can wash them whiter than snow. Yes. How? How? He says, says, come, let us reason together. Yes. And then there's this back and forth. Yes. And they work through the lawsuit, which fundamentally is God collecting a whole pile of evidence of how God's people have always been violating his law. 
And then finally offering them, again, that great escape clause of his mercy. If they will repent, if they will trust him for forgiveness, he will cleanse them through his word. So the the prophets, again, are functioning both for blessing and for cursing as God's covenant lawyers. Mm, That's really helpful. Well, Tyler, this has been a really helpful uh, conversation. This is now our third episode in hermeneutics. There's so much more that can be said for sure. Take us out with this particular episode with kind of just a summary of what we've covered, specifically in the redemptive historical uh, portion, how to read specifically maybe some Old Testament texts in a messianic way. What would you leave us with with just a closing couple of sentences, closing thoughts here? Certainly. Uh, what What I would really encourage people to do is to think about how was Jesus reading his Bible, because we want to conform to read the Bible the way that Christ did. And one thing I think that is helpful to remember is that if someone is a believer or if they're a member of a church, that means that we are actually in covenant with God. We have a relationship that's formal. He has a written constitution for his kingdom, so to speak. Mm, That's that's his word, the Old Testament and the New. And as we look at these three sections of the Old Testament, it actually reveals to us, in a sense, three very simple things, which is first, he gives us covenant law, then he shows us his covenant lawyers, and then he gives us wisdom for covenant living. Mm. And so if we know God's always revealing in the Old Testament the law, the lawyers, and how to live life according to his word, then we have everything that we need to live life in Christ from the Old Testament. And actually, we have those three same categories in the new in a recapitulation format. It's coming. (laughs) It's coming. We'll have to leave that for a later episode. But uh, Tyler, thank you so much for these first three episodes. It's been a joy to sit here with you and discuss. We look forward to having some more of these. Thank you for all that you're doing with, uh, specifically with the teaching through these classes. You've done a lot of work here. But for the listener, that's it today. Thank you for listening for this episode in particular. We hope it's been a blessing to you. Don't forget before you go, like or share the podcast with someone that you think would also benefit from it. Remember, this is the third episode in a little mini-series on introduction to hermeneutics. So please go back and listen to the first two if you haven't already. Those will be very helpful as well. Lastly, uh, submit questions to us through our website and our media tab. If you ever have a thought you'd like for us to cover in a podcast on a future date, you can let us know there. And as usual, until next time, grace and peace with you all.